Welcome to 49. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic International Studies. I was a national intelligence officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. And I'm Nicole Ouellette. I'm chief of staff at the Open Society Foundations. And like Judd, I served at the National Security Council. I also served at the U.S. State Department and at Senate Foreign Relations Committee, all with a focus on Africa. This podcast is everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards sub-Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we promise to deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time. This episode is about Mali, and we are joined by Kamisa Kamaha, a senior visiting expert for the Sahel at the U.S. Institute of Peace. She was Mali's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister of Digital Economy and Planning, and most recently, Chief of Staff to the President of Mali. Judd, give us a thumbnail sketch of U.S. policy towards Mali. Mali in the 1960s was known in Washington as one of the West African radicals, along with Ghana and Guinea. The intelligence community constantly talked about Mali as being this gateway for the Soviet Union and for communist Chinese influence. President Kennedy, however, was unwilling to count Mali out, and he invited the country's first president, Modibo Keita, to the White House, even taking him up to his personal living quarters. Relationships, however, deteriorated. The United States cut back on its assistance, and Keita was overthrown in 1968 by a paratrooper, by the way, who was trained by the U.S., and whose wife had worked for the U.S. Embassy Information Services. That led to persistent rumors that the U.S. had engineered the coup. Regardless of the allegations, it was true that his successor, Musa Traore, was friendlier to the United States and steered the country towards the non-alignment camp. And the U.S. ramped up its development programming. In fact, one diplomat said it was the tail that wagged the dog. U.S. diplomats recognized that Traore ruled as a dictator, but criticisms were few and far in between due to fear that he could shift Mali back to the communist camp. In 1991, student protests set the stage for a military overthrow of the Traore regime. Mali's political transition resulted in the election of Alpha Kanari, and it made it a democratic darling. Kanari visited the White House twice in the 1990s, and Mali hosted the Community of Democracies Ministerial in 2007. Mali's two decades of democratic rule arguably blinded the United States to the growing domestic problems, although there had already been concerns about a growing extremist threat. When Gaddafi fell in 2011, northern separatists and jihadists started to pick up territory and the military overthrew the elected government of Amadou Toumani Touré, also known as Atete. The U.S. imposed sanctions and backed the AU and later U.N. peacekeeping missions, as well as French counterterrorism mission to address the growing insecurity. The United States also supported the transition back to civilian rule in 2013. Ibrahim Boubacar Keita, Ibaka, a longtime politician, was elected. The security situation, however, continued to deteriorate, and street protests in August 2020 resulted in Ibaka's ouster. It was followed by a second coup nine months later. The U.S. has reimposed sanctions and is pressing for the return of civilian rule while mulling its future counterterrorism posture. Nicole, why don't you tell us about a success or failure? Sure. So I usually like to talk about a success, but this time I'm going to go failure. I think the challenges we're facing right now in Mali are indicative of the role the U.S. has played in the last number of years to not quite get it right, in particular when it comes to our decision around Libya. So I'm not going to talk here. There's a thousand other podcasts on the merits of uh, going into Libya or not, but the merits of that decision 
at the time were related, at least in part, to the prevention of a massacre. So I think there's a broader debate. But we did go in. We went in fast, as we all know. And we didn't or weren't able to really engage with other African nations about the challenges to come as a result of that. We acted fast. We were looking to prevent civilian casualties and didn't consult with the African Union and a lot of other stakeholders. So that was widely critiqued at the time by the Africans, and I think built some distrust that we are still trying to untangle in our U.S. relations. But with specific regard to Mali, one of the unintended consequences of Libya was the exodus of small arms and light weapons out of the region. And this came right over to Mali. It became basically an arms bazaar for these groups, despite a lot of efforts to the contrary. I think earlier links to Al-Qaeda, we knew that there was some support, some linkages. But when you start bringing truckfuls of AKs over that Libyans are selling in order to then go buy food back in Libya, you know, you're starting to see challenges that reach beyond what we could have possibly prepared for. So I think that's a real challenge. I think we have a lot of work to do to come back from that on the continent generally. But in this case, I think the outcome has been quite tangible in terms of what we need to look at. Kamisa, since you were the foreign minister and have personal experience of U.S. policy towards Mali, we get to turn the tables and ask you, if you were in the driver's seat, what do you think the Biden policy towards Mali should have been or should be? Excuse me. Well, maybe just to comment on what you mentioned earlier, as you rightly pointed out, Mali has had a long and rocky history with the United States in a very recent past, and that was in 2006, if my memory serves me right, Mali has benefited from a $460 million Millennium Compact Assistance Package from the United States. And the funds intended to serve as a catalyst for sustainable economic growth and poverty reduction through key infrastructure investment. Unfortunately, the compact ended with the 2012 coup, And since then, U.S. bilateral foreign assistance to Mali has varied from one year to the other. So the current U.S. strategy towards Mali, and that preceded Biden, does include the strengthening of democracy and democratic institutions, plus the promotion of regional security. I am of the opinion that this strategy is the right one. However, it is the way the U.S. goes about implementing the strategy that the Biden administration will have to refine and finesse. I'm a big advocate of diplomacy because I believe in its power to move mountains. And in Mali, the United States has often taken a back seat because of the overwhelming presence of France. Yet in Francophone Africa, the United States is seen as a voice of reason this big brother that has done great things around the world and who has gained the legitimacy to give informed advice. And so using its diplomatic power and clout, that is really the way I believe the United States should go about upholding democracy and encouraging regional security in Mali and in the Sahel. Judd, how do we make that happen? How do we move the interagency on Mali? Well, I think Kamisa is absolutely right. You know, this is a time for us to refresh the approach. There might be some of the key objectives. They're absolutely correct. But it's time for us to think about how we do our work. And I would encourage the interagency to do some really hard thinking about our approach to Mali over the past and the Sahel more broadly over the past decade. So first, just on the transition in and of itself, I'm very concerned. I know Kamisa has written about this as well about the intent of Colonel Goita, who is now in charge of the transitional government, 
to actually steer this country towards civilian rule. It's been a positive to see the Francophonie, to see the World Bank and others cut ties, but we need to be very clear about what are the markers to get back to a political transition. And part of that is, of course, as Camisa said, engaging with civil society. But then we do have to look at what we're doing more broadly. The CT approach, we spend a lot of time decapitating prominent leaders, but are we actually creating the space for the government to govern? How do we think about negotiations in certain areas where we see the militants providing rule of law? We're going to have to think differently and perhaps break some old ways to see how we to address these problems. I think that there's a whole lot of work we need to be doing with the various different peacekeeping units that are all over this place. So we have MINUSMA, the UN peacekeeping mission. The French are drawing down Barkhan, but they will continue to be active in Task Force Tacuba, which is a European mission. There's the European training mission, the EUTM. There's bilateral engagements from the US and others. How do all of these things stitch together? Are we actually working together in the right direction, or is there a lot of redundancy? And then I think that Camisa is right. The US has its own reputation and its own legacy apart from the French. And I don't think this is a place that we can just follow Paris wherever it goes. We have skills in terms of people-to-people engagement and diplomacy that are unique and different from French. And if we want to see a better result in Mali, then we're going to have to be clear about what we stand for. And I guess the one last point is the region's really important here. Engaging with Niger and Burkina and Mauritania and the other countries that are worried about Mali is another way to make this not just a U.S., a European response, but a community of stakeholders. So, Kamisa, let's go a little bigger. Any crazy ideas you want to put on the table, really shake things up? Well, you know, I always have crazy ideas, and I'm happy to share one with you. You know, sometimes I think that the, you know, the Young African Leaders Initiative, also known as YALI, the one that was created by the Obama administration, I sometimes think that it is an incomplete initiative. Having young African leaders come to the United States for a month or two is great diplomacy, don't get me wrong, but I would love to see young American leaders in Africa in a young American leaders program. We have some talented youth here in the U.S. who I'm sure would love to also experience being in an African university or an African startup for a month or two. Why can't we push for that? Kamisa, Mali is known the world over for its music. Can you recommend a book for all of us to read? Definitely. So for all French speakers and readers, I would recommend a classic titled Amkulel L'Enfant Peul. That book was also translated in English, and I checked, as Amkulel the Fula Boy. It is by one of the greatest Malian writers and historians named Amadou Ampateba. The book is available in English. I say it again. I have probably read it more than 10 times. It is the autobiography of Amadou Ampateba himself, and the fascinating story takes place in a period of war and colonial conquest. It's beautifully written and almost reads like a very long poem. I highly recommend it. That's the show. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to read more CSS analysis, check out our website, www.csis.org backslash Africa.